0: Hello and welcome to the Do One Better podcast in philanthropy, sustainability and social entrepreneurship. I'm Alberto Ligi, your host from London. Please click that subscribe button and follow us if you're not doing so already. And do leave us a rating and a review. It helps others to find the show as well. Today, it's an absolute pleasure to welcome Richard Hawkes, Chief Executive Officer of the British Asian Trust. We're going to be talking about impact investing, social finance, and embracing risk. And we're going to specifically look at the work they are doing with development impact bonds across a range of thematic areas, including skills and employability, girls' education in Pakistan, in India, and really with a focus on South Asia more broadly. So, this is a show, this is an episode. That's going to be of interest to you, no matter whether you're a philanthropist or a financier or someone running a foundation or someone running a charity, you will learn a bit more about impact investing, and you will realize that possibly it's not as complicated as you might think, and that it can be a very impactful solution to helping us bridge the funding gap we have to meet the targets for the sustainable development goals in 2030. So without further ado, Richard, a big heartfelt welcome onto the Do One Better podcast today.
1: Alberto, thank you very much. It's good to be asked to have done this.
0: Oh, well, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. I'm delighted to see you again. And I'd love to kick off by finding out a little bit about the British Asian Trust. What's the organization all about?
1: Great. So, uh, So the British Asian Trust has been going for about 15 years. We were originally set up by a combination of some of the leading figures in the British Asian community. Uh, mainly from the Indian and Pakistani diaspora, who came together with the person who, at that stage, was the Prince of Wales and is now the that is now King Charles III, to create an organisation that could really try and galvanise the British Asian community to support developments across South Asia. So there was there was a a recognition, a strong recognition at the time amongst the diaspora that people really wanted to do something to support positive developments in the region but there was a deep cynicism of the traditional international NGO organisations and so what happened was a lot of people from the community wanted to help the region they didn't trust traditional international NGOs and they thought if they set something up themselves that that could be led by the diaspora trusted by the diaspora some of them were very close to the, the Prince of Wales as was and it was agreed that it would become one of his charities. And so that was the background. And in the 15 years, ever since then, the organization has been about trying to drive positive change across South Asia.
0: And tell me a little bit about the organization in terms of what it looks like today. Is it is it a, a, a big outfit in terms of people who are working there? Give us a little bit of insight into the organization itself.
1: So um, we, we, we've grown quite a lot in recent years. Um, as an organisation overall, we, we're very committed to what we would call a localization agenda. And so, for me personally, I, I've always felt that in international development, you need to really, you know, power needs to be as far away from from the the, the global north as possible. And so, you need to localise, set up structures, and so on, so that decisions can be best made as close to the ground as possible. So, so we now have teams across india and pakistan and bangladesh and so all together we've, we've got about 60 members of staff um, and about half of those are are, are in the region uh, just over half are, are actually in the region um, we as with a lot of international ngos we don't run our own programs as such um, well sorry let me rephrase that we do run programs what we don't do is direct delivery so we will do a lot of work in education for example we've run big education programs but the local delivery of direct services in education, jobs, development, mental health and so on will all be done by local partner organisations. So we work with uh, over 100 local partner organisations across the region in our focus programme areas. Our support base is we we enjoy a lot of support from the British Asian community in the UK. We enjoy support from the global um, South Asian diaspora And then we also have great relationships with a whole range of different trusts and foundations and corporates and government funders. So, as I say, we've grown a lot, Uh, programmes quite extensive now and lots and lots of different organisations that we work with and a great diverse range of people and organisations that support us.
0: Great, and the focus areas you, you, you touched on education as being one of those thematic areas. Yeah, uh, what are the main focus areas that you're? So we
1: have so there's five five verticals, five thematic areas that we work in: education, livelihoods, straight jobs, mental health, child protection, and conservation.
0: Got you. So if somebody's based here in the UK or maybe elsewhere, but they're interested in supporting uh, work in India or Pakistan or Bangladesh. Um, is it simply a question of picking up the phone or getting on your website, seeing what, you know, how, how they might be able to get involved, where people might be thinking to themselves, well, I'd like to give to, say, education in India. I can either try to find local delivery partners or, or organizations that are based on the ground. I can find different organizations that operate in India uh, who have offices here. Can they just come up to you and say, look, I want to back education in India. Here's some money. Go ahead and help us
1: out. Yeah, absolutely. That's you know we we would like to think that we are as strong as any other organisation, if not stronger, um, at delivering better value for money for people that want to donate to anything in India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, Sri Lanka. We provide that vehicle that enables people to, to support both the work that we're doing and also there, there are people that want to support through us and there's initiatives that they're keen to support anyway and sometimes we can co-produce and co-develop things with, with people. I, I think increasingly over the years there, there has been an increase of direct local giving And what international NGOs and international organisations have to do is demonstrate the value added that they're bringing. And so if I can't demonstrate to a donor in the UK that they're better off giving their funds through me, then I'm not doing my organisation. I'm not doing my job properly. And so I think that we as the British Asian Trust bring the expertise of the knowledge on the ground uh, through our teams on the ground in the region. We will have done the the appropriate checking of any organisations, the appropriate due diligence, the monitoring of the programme, and then able to provide the reports back to, to donors on that. So we're very cost effective, cost efficient in terms of keeping our costs down. So if somebody in the UK wanted to make a difference in South Asia, then I would say, and obviously I should be saying this, but I genuinely would believe it, that the best way of doing that to bring about the greatest impacts and the greatest value for money for the money that would be given would be through the British Asian Trust.
0: Yeah, And the uh, from an Indian context, I know there's been some regulations that have come in regarding foreign contributions and so forth. Has that impacted you adversely in any way?
1: Um, I would say, the yeah, so for anybody who's listening who doesn't know that, there's something called the Foreign Contributions Regulation Act in in India. So every organisation that receives international funds in India has to be properly registered um, to receive FCRA. And there have been quite a lot of changes to that recently. I would say it, it's made some minor differences. Um, the, still, the organisations that we work with all have FCRA approval anyway. Um, and so it overall, it's tightened things up. It's, you know, it's made us... There are some things we've had to change, but broadly, you know, all of that is sort of operational stuff. It hasn't really had an impact on our strategy and the programs we support.
0: Mm. Now, I know when we met, we had a great conversation um, maybe about three months ago. And also from the stuff that I've been reading, I gather there's a strong entrepreneurial streak uh, in the British Asian Trust. And so I know you've grown tremendously, if I'm not mistaken, something along the lines of from a million pounds to to over twenty million pounds uh, over the last five years, um, give us a little bit of a glimpse into how that happened, uh, what that looks like.
1: Yeah, so I think um, as you can tell from the color of my hair, I've been around the sector a long time. I've you know you know I've worked in the the not for profit sector for almost thirty years, and I've never come across an organisation like the British Asian Trust. I think it's It's been in the DNA of the organisation since it started to be more entrepreneurial, uh, to embrace innovation more. There's a tremendous appetite for risk. You know, so a board of trustees that embrace risk, they think like entrepreneurs. But, you you know, these are the kind of people that set the organisation up and have been on the board ever since. They they understand that you're not going to get everything right. And that if you want to keep moving forward and you want to scale, you want to innovate, you want to be different, you'll make some mistakes. Um, I've not come across that culture in the charity sector. You know, a lot of a lot of charity boards are very risk averse. They don't like failure in any way. Organizations want to prove to donors that everything has been successful. But the reality is that that's all just not possible. You know, there are some times when we're going to try things out and it's not going to work. And if we're not trying different things out, then are we really innovating? Are we really trying to find solutions and so on? And so the great thing that the British Asian Trust, and this has been there for, you, you know, for years since before I started there, is this absolute desire to want to scale, want to innovate, want to do things differently and want being prepared to, to embrace risk and embrace failure and learn from that. And so for me, it's been a, an absolutely tremendous learning experience because it was very different coming into this environment from having worked in the sort of more mainstream charity sector for so long. And to come in, into an environment that was unbelievably agile and fast moving, constantly wanting to achieve more, constantly looking at how to scale things and just working in a very, very different environment was, you know, I had to adapt pretty quickly to that but i've just learned a huge amount from it and it's it's been an absolute breath of fresh
0: air yeah how do you give permission to fail to your grantees or how do you so i can one thing is seeing your trustees coming up to you and saying richard go ahead embrace risk sensible risk but embrace it and you know we're gonna we're, we're we'll be with you you know if it goes up great if it goes down we'll support you and so forth how do you how do you transfer that mindset to those in the front lines who may not be as well versed in that sort of risk-taking culture as you might be that's a good 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 point and who may not feel as supported, right because they don't have that access to uh, the the great and the good and the on the board you know how do you get a a delivery partner or, or or a country office to embrace risk and to feel comfortable with the notion of that the way you are and the way you've been empowered by your board
1: so I'll give you I, I'll give you very current story. So I was in India last week and we had an event to celebrate the results of an education development impact bond that we started about four or five years ago. And it's just come to the end after four years. Um, and this again, for you, you know, for me, this has been a hugely exciting, innovative initiative to have to have been a part of. Um one of the Um, At the event, there was a session with the local partner organisations that we'd worked with, and the chief executive of one of the partner organisations said that the most brilliant thing about this initiative and this programme had been that um, his organisation had been allowed to fail, allowed to learn, and allowed to get things right themselves because they'd been trusted to deliver results. And he said it's unlike anything else that he's ever worked on where international donors and international NGOs would, would come down on him the minute anything failed um, and tell him exactly what he, he would have to do. But with this, he was given the freedom and the flexibility to correct things himself, um, you know, to get the organisation focused on the results that they, they needed to deliver, rather than being told by an international organisation or donor what the exact activities were that they, they, they had to deliver. And for me, it was just so fantastic hearing that because um, this is the, the, the way that we try and work. It's just, you know, it's, it's not possible in the environments in which we're working in for everything to happen the way that you think it's going to happen when you first put in an application or develop a partnership. You know, we've got big programs across Pakistan um, in livelihoods and mental health, for example. And of course, a lot of our partner organizations have been affected by the devastating floods that have been happening in Pakistan. Now, you know, we can't have them worrying about what they've got to do to deliver to us whilst they've got other priorities or they need to pivot the direction of what they're doing. You know, exactly the same in India over the last couple of, you know, India 18 months ago when the oxygen crisis happened. You know, people have got to feel that flexibility. They've got to feel that they've got that trust, that they can be trusted to, to change things and, and to do the right thing. And, and you know, so, so for us, we, we get this across in all of our partnerships and all of our Um, you know, with all of our colleagues, that things are not going to be exactly as you might have planned them. They're not going to be as you might have wanted them. Um, Some things are going to be difficult to deliver. You know, we're we're incredibly ambitious about what we want to achieve, but sometimes that's not always going to be possible in the way that you've outlined it. And so trying to get that culture into the organisation, and it's absolutely driven from our our board, you know, where it is made up of people that make sure the DNA of the organisation is about trying things, accepting that some things won't work, but you know, fail fast, learn from it, um, and then adapt accordingly. And so we just try and keep that running through everything that we do.
0: How do you how do you convince those local partners that indeed what you're saying will be met with the uh, the reactions that you're, you're you're claiming? In other words, how do you convince somebody that it's okay to fail, and you're not just saying it; it's not just empty words, but that actually, if they do fail, it, it's not the end of the world
1: only by de- by constantly demonstrating that you know because a lot of partner organizations across the, across the world are are used to different ways of having to to behave you know I, I remember 20 years ago the ngos would write reports to donors and they would literally say they'd write reports um for, for let's say a four-year project and the financial reports would say we spent for the penny exactly what we said we were going to spend four years ago. Well, you can't believe that it's nonsense. You know, we achieved exactly what we said we were going to achieve. It's not possible. And so what, what we try and do is just constantly work with our partners, be honest with them about that. And you can only do that by the constant behavior that you show to them and the constant way that you build that relationship, which is what we seem to do.
0: Yeah something from my own personal experience, but I think it will resonate with you and, and maybe with others who are listening. Uh, a lot of times you feel like it's so difficult to get uh, credible feedback from grantees because nobody wants to show any of their weaknesses. But in actual fact, if every single report you're getting from a grantee is, is everything is glowingly good. I wouldn't believe it. There must be something wrong, right?
1: I totally agree. I, you know, I remember this, this was probably more than 20 years ago. I was working in a in a disability NGO and we would got some funding from a from a foundation and it was um we'd had a three year grant and at the end of the first year I just realized that it was just not going to be possible that the external circumstances had impacted on the work that we were doing. And we just weren't gonna be able to deliver in the same way because things had changed so much. And I took the risk and I went and sat down with this this funder and I said, Look, I'm really sorry. We're not, I explained why I said, we're not going to deliver this. And obviously I'd be happy to give you the money back because we're just not going to be able to do it. And she, she, she sat there and basically said, nobody would ever gone to them and said that. Um, and then talk more about it. And we ended up chatting for a couple of hours. And then I went back a, a couple of weeks later. And the end result was that we got a five-year flexible partnership with them where we agreed, what are we trying to achieve over this five years? We'll report back on how it's going, what we're achieving, and we'll be totally honest about the things that aren't working. And it just gave me the absolute security of knowing I'm gonna get this funding in, however, however much we don't deliver, however much, you know. And of course you end up with that flexibility, you end up delivering a lot more, um, because you've got that freedom to adapt. And so so for me it was just such a huge learning from someone twenty odd years ago that had that massive impact on the the you know, the whole way I think about this
0: thing. Is this mindset of sensible risk taking? Uh, is this something that you're seeing it permeate throughout the international development space? Uh, at least the UK mindset, or
1: no, no, I don't see. I don't see organisations taking risks. I think. I think a lot of organisations are very risk averse. I think a lot of boards are very risk averse. I think a lot of boards, um, you know, they, they want to see success with everything. And a lot of organisations aren't prepared to take those risks. You know, I, I remember this was probably four or five years ago. Um, we secured a, an aid match partnership where um, DFID, as was now SEDO, will match fund what you raise over a, over, um, a three month period. And my my board immediately, I sat down with the chair. We looked at um, how this was going to work and we identified about six or seven different ways of generating income through that three month period. And we agreed to put some investment behind each of those areas um, and then really monitor each one um, as it was happening. There was one area of fundraising that after about a month, it clearly wasn't working. So we stopped. Um, And so the investment we put into it was obviously money that there was no return on because we stopped that. Um, But we immediately reinvested more in the areas that were working at the end of the three months we'd absolutely smashed the targets that 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 we'd set. Um, and i I, when i sat with the board afterwards the thing that they were most pleased with was the area that had failed and the fact that we'd realized it was failing very quickly and looked at the data and evidence and changed in most other organizations that i've worked the board would have looked at the area that you've you failed in inverted commas in and scrutinised why that area hadn't worked. Our board they they absolutely welcomed the fact that we learned very quickly, and so it was all about data, all about evidence. And I just don't think that I think too much of the international development sector is if people make decisions based on how they feel, or what their instincts are, or you know what 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 they think might happen whereas if if you're absolutely looking at data and evidence and focused on results and you're prepared to really analyze things and realize something's not working and move quickly um, you can do that but um, unfortunately i think that the wider sector plays it too safe too much you know if, if we had to think what are the what are the greatest innovations what are the greatest things that have happened differently in the charity sector over the last 30 years We'd, we'd struggle to come up with more than five, um, you know. Whereas if you look at retail or you, you look at most other sectors, you could see huge innovation, you know. But the charity sector just doesn't do
0: that, unfortunately. So slow to innovate, uh, but one innovative aspect of international development, and you touched on it briefly about ten minutes ago. Your involvement with the development impact bond, yeah, within the field of education, in your case. What's going on on that front?
1: Okay, so if you step back and look at the bigger picture, it's it's currently estimated that to achieve the sustainable development goals, there's probably approximately, depending on who you listen to, a $2.5 trillion a year funding gap. $2.5 trillion a year, okay? Now, what a lot of People are therefore saying a lot of uh, what a lot of NGOs say, what a lot of you know development practitioners say is, "Well, we need 2.5 trillion extra dollars uh, to, to 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 make it back up that gap." That is never going to happen. We're not going to get 2.5 trillion dollars. So what we have got to do is look at the funding that is in the system at the moment and ask, "Is that really delivering the best results, the best outcomes that we that it possibly could?" I, I don't believe there is anybody in the world that could argue. Uh, All of the funds at the moment that are in the global development system are absolutely delivering to maximum impact uh, with maximum efficiency and effectiveness. And so what we've got to do is look at how do we make things more efficient? How do we get rid of waste? How do we make things more effective? How do we get better value for money for all of the funding that's in the system at the moment? You're only going to do that if you look at new ways of doing things. If you look at innovation. If you look at you know you, you know trying to do things in a different way. And so, for me, things like developers, impact bonds, impact investing, social finance. This this whole world is so incredibly exciting because it they provide opportunities to get people refocused on results, uh, to refocus on making sure that you're delivering impact, uh, to work at scale. And to bring new money into the system as well. So it takes a lot of boxes in terms of getting private. You know, there are increasingly people out there um, that want to make money, but also do good. And if there are people out there that want to make money and do good, then let's look at ways that we can provide them with vehicles whereby they might be able to make a financial return, but they're also getting the social return as well. And again, this world of impact investing and social finance provides that. It provides opportunities for people to get a blended return of both a social return and a financial return. Um, And depending on what what structures are set up, you can drive an absolute focus on results and outcomes and impact as opposed to the focus which has been traditional in the development space, which is about activities and inputs. And if you can change that mindset so that people are focused on results and then you're using data and evidence to prove what's the best way of doing something you can drive greater efficiency within the whole pot that's already there at the moment and so for me this is a hugely exciting way of trying to change things of trying to drive change of trying to disrupt the 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 infrastructure a little bit to, to bring in new ways of doing things new ways of thinking new ways of working to drive that greater efficiency in the whole system at the moment and give us a much better chance of of seeking to achieve the SDGs without relying on just more money coming in.
0: And again, just like in your experience, you have experience running the umbrella organization for UK-based international development outfits. Likewise, your past experience involves the sort of social financing side as well.
1: Um, Yeah, so in my last job before I came to the British Asian Trust, I was chief executive of SCOPE, which is a a disability a large disability charity uh, used to be a large disability charity in the in the UK, um, and whilst I was there, we looked at we embraced social finance, and it was around the time of the coalition the coalition government uh, sort of ten years ago um, was really looking at social finance at um, impact bonds, you know, with all that the big society agenda and things like that. And there was a really exciting unit um, within the cabinet office that was exploring all of these areas. And I just got to know some of the people in there and, um, and just thought there were some really interesting things that were happening. And at Scope, we ended up launching a social investment bond. Now, that was actually a listed bond on the Luxembourg stock market. and um, And we launched this bond and it was a way of generating income for us to then invest in other areas of income generation. And so it was just, it was, again, it was interesting, innovative, exciting, but it had great results for us as well. So I think when I'd i learned a bit in that sort of space, and then when I started at the British Asian Trust, um, there was a huge desire from the board at the time to really explore this area.
0: Very interesting, very interesting. And how challenging is it to get into this space? And I don't, because a lot of people listening to this were probably thinking, yes, I know about impact investing. Maybe I know a lot of it. Maybe I know a little bit. Um, I've heard that maybe it's a bit complicated, not that straightforward. You said you're, you you know you listed the bond in the Luxembourg uh, exchange. Um, okay, most people haven't even been to Luxembourg. <laughs> how how challenging is it to get into the space, or do you need to go and speak to a, a UBS or one of these other institutions and have them hold your hand and and give you that? Um...
1: Um, so it depends who you are and what how you want to get into it. If 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 you're if you're an investor and you, you want to look at getting in on that side, then yes, there are there are organisations like UBS, which are absolutely brilliant. They're at the, the forefront of, of this in, in, in many ways on the investor side. And so they set up a number of funds that investors could be interested in. Um, if you're a, 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 a an international development NGO, um, there are ways of getting involved. If you're a local partner organisation, there are ways of getting involved. If, if you want to be an outcomes funder, which which is another way of be, being involved, a trust or foundation, Um, There are an increasing number of um, initiatives um, out there. And there are also organisations that you can go to to get more information about it as well. And so um, I I think increasingly there are more and more people that are interested in this. Um, You know, so increasingly you see foundations that will have um, both a sort of traditional philanthropic stream as well as an impact investing stream. And so I think there is a real appetite to to do more. There are global organisations like the Global Steering Group on Impact Investing um, that provide a lot of information. So you you, you know there are some really good organisations out there. That 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 sector is really developing well. Um, where where there's been a lot of resistance or a lot of lack of interest, I would say is in the traditional international NGO sector. You know, and I think unfortunately it goes back to what I was saying before. I think. A lot of international NGOs just carry on doing the same things in the same way year after year after year. And 40 years later, they're still raising money in the same way and delivering programs in the same way. And so that's where the real innovation needs needs to happen. But um, I would say it can't be that complicated because I almost understand most of it. And so <laughs> I'm, genuinely, it's not that complicated. Um, it's just a different way of doing things.
0: Yeah, Absolutely. And at the British Asian Trust, in terms of what you're doing on that side of things?
1: Yeah, so we, we were very fortunate a couple of years ago. We had a partnership with DFID, which is now um, FCDO, um, whereby we were working together with them to look at how we drive the social finance um, space across South Asia. We've been able to then, we, we've, we've had a number of initiatives up and going, and so we've just come to the end of... Uh, first, which was the, what's been the world's largest education development impact bond. that The results have been absolutely fantastic for, and we're just rolling that out now. Um, about a year ago, we were, we launched in partnership with who, who are the who are the partners in that one? The partners on that one. So we've worked together with UBS, um, so the UBS Optimus Foundation, the Michael and Susan Dell Foundation, uh, but then also Comic Relief were involved, British Telecom were involved, the Mittel Foundation, Larry Ellison Foundation. Um, Tata Trust, a whole range of really great organisations. Um, we've just launched a skills impact bond in India, so a $13 million skills impact bond in partnership with the government of India's National Skills Development Corporation. and And, and this is about transforming the way that skilling works. So traditional skills programmes focus on giving people a certificate at the end of the skills programme um our, our skills impact bond is all about getting jobs, and so the skills providers have to train people, give them the skills, then identify a workplace that you know an employer where they're going to work, and they only get paid not when they get somebody a job, but when that person's still in a job after three months, and so the whole focus becomes about job retention as opposed to giving people a skill certificate. And so by working in a different way, you focus and change people's mindsets to get them focused on what really matters. Now, in a skills programme, the certificate doesn't matter. It's whether they're going to get a job at the end of it that matters. And so we've got this great initiative with the the government of India that's focused on that. Um, We're also very close to launching the first ever impact bond in Pakistan in partnership with the Asian Development Bank, which is going to be focused on girls' education. And so, so there's some great, you know, there's some great things that we're doing in this, in this space. Um, and some of the results are really starting to prove to be, you know, fantastic.
0: Someone listening to this who's keen on finding out more about gross education impact bond in Pakistan or, or this employability and skills impact bond. Um, where do they go to find out more uh, about all of this stuff that you're doing?
1: Okay. Two very simple ways. One, go to our website, www.britishasiantrust.org to contact me directly, richard.hawks at britishasiantrust.org. I'm very happy for anybody to email me and I have never had an email that I haven't responded to. So if people want to find out more about any of this, um, just get in touch.
0: Great stuff, great stuff. And tell me, what's that key takeaway that you'd love for the audience to keep in mind after they finish listening to today's show?
1: Well, I hope it's been interesting for people. I mean, we're, we're you know, the, the 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 main thing for me is that I think there are huge challenges globally and we've got to keep believing that we can do something about it. You know, there's there's been so much brilliant progress made over the last 30, 40 years in, internationally and the charity sector, the not-for-profit sector has been absolutely at the heart of a lot of that and is a brilliant vehicle for for making change happen. However, we've also got to keep innovating, keep moving forward, keep changing ourselves. You know, we, we exist to bring about change in the world. If we're not changing ourselves, then we're just going to stay standing still and we're not going to be moving forward. And so I think my main takeaway is that there's a lot to be optimistic about, We can absolutely change the world, um, but the charity sector has got to be prepared to keep looking at itself, keep innovating, and keep trying to look at doing things in a different way to bring about those changes that, that we absolutely can bring about.
0: Richard, thank you so much for joining me. It's been great seeing you again and learning from you today. And I'm genuinely curious to learn more. So I will be one of these people going to the website and finding out a little bit more about these various impact bonds I think it's fascinating stuff, and I wish you continued success.
1: Yeah, Alberto, thank you very much for having me. That was really interesting.
0: Perfect, and that's a wrap. Thanks very much for tuning in. As always, you've been listening to a great chat with Richard Hawkes, Chief Executive of the British Asian Trust. For information about this conversation and nearly 200 other interviews and case studies, with remarkable leaders in philanthropy, sustainability, and social entrepreneurship, just visit our website at lidji.org. That's L-I-D-J-I.org. Please click that subscribe button and follow us if you're not doing so already. And do leave us a rating and a review. It helps others to find this show as well. I hope you found this episode as interesting and fascinating as I did. Thoroughly enjoyed producing this show for you. And very much looking forward to catching up with you next week. Thanks very much.